Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company again on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon here in the Highfelt here in Johannesburg. And, of course, uh, moving into different um, processes here in Joburg as we are with the uh, downgrade or the upgrade of the lockdown and, uh, of course, all the new challenges that it brings for each and every one of us. But Judaism 101.9 still continues to bring you the up-to-date um, ideas and ideals that we're supposed to be following, we're supposed to be thinking about. And, of course, as we always do, to take a look at the upcoming events in the Jewish calendar to think about what they are, what they mean, what they mean for us. And practically speaking, on Judaism 101.9, what we are supposed to do about it. So let's begin with an upcoming Chag. There is a festival that is coming up on Friday. Yes, this coming Friday. There is a festival, a Jewish festival. Now, the fact of the matter is that uh, you'll only kind of know that it's a Jewish festival because of the fact that our prayer service is impacted by not having to say Tachanun. The penitential prayers are not said on Friday. And if you look in your calendar, you'll see that it says that Friday is a Chag, a festival called Pesach Sheni. So what is Pesach Sheni? This second Pesach. And the challenge or the question is, is it a second Pesach at all? And may it actually be a first in and of itself? Is there something that makes it second? Or is there something that reserves its right to proclaim itself or to have it proclaimed as a completely different festival with a completely different idea and ideal from the idea of Pesach 1 or the first Pesach, which we celebrated, believe it or not, almost a month ago. So let's first explore what this Pesach Sheni, this second Pesach, is actually all about, as we said, coming up on this Friday, which is the 14th day of Iyar, the 14th day in the month of Iyar. Well, first of all, why that date? What is the idea of this 14th? And here there are a couple of different answers. The first one that, interestingly enough, is brought by the Torah itself and, of course, in the commentaries of Rashi and so on, on the Chumash itself, it's calculated that the Jewish people in the time of the desert, and I've often spoken to you about the fact that the time in the desert was kind of a DNA, a microcosm, um, a building blocks, a foundation for Judaism and many of the things that we do uh, today. We look back at what happened while we were in the desert, that essential time in the desert between quitting Egypt and getting uh, to Israel was 40 years of difficulty and problems and issues, but also 40 years of great and wondrous miracles. And it was also a time when the building blocks of Judaism were laid in a very, very real way. Yes, of course, we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, and that gave us the blueprint of everything in our lives. But there were certain things that were instituted along the way that have a certain fascination and that are brilliant, brilliant ideas um, in the um, in the in the in the history thereof, and in the way that we now keep to certain things in Judaism, they were all that foundation was laid for us while we were in the desert. So, what happened in the desert on the fourteenth 
of Iyar. Well, there was something significant that happened, and that was that the matzah supply ran out, according to our sages. The matzah supply ran out. That means that the Jewish people had taken with them matzah to eat, and they used it not just for the week-long festival of Pesach as we have today, but actually they used it all the way up until the 14th of year. And it was at that time that the matzah supply ran out. And now we had to switch from using something that we were used to, from using something that we had become accustomed to and we knew represented all the miracles and wonders, we now needed to change. And all of a sudden, the change was not just a, a change in substance, but it was a change in our headspace as well. All of a sudden, there was the provision of manna that began from this day. And when the manna, when the mon began to fall in the desert for the Jewish people, this now switched our headspace to an understanding of the fact that God, number one, would always provide. That no matter whether we were in a, a, a one kind of a difficulty or we'd got into another, whether we were in a diaspora or we were in, in a uh, an exile or, on the other hand, in a place of geula, of redemption, Hashem would provide and the miracles of the way that he would provide would be something different, something exceptional, something incredible that happened in the desert. So we switched to that. There was also the idea of the motivation from the people. The people came and they complained to Moshe, to Moses, and this wasn't a complaint of moaning. This was a complaint of sincere spiritual idea and ideal, and that was that it had been decreed that the Jewish people had to celebrate Pesach. And the Jewish people came along with a very, very valid taina, with a very valid complaint. Their complaint was, what happens in temple times or in the future if people miss out on Pesach? We don't want to miss out on Pesach. But what happens if we miss out on Pesach? And the miss out on Pesach means that we cannot bring the sacrifice. We cannot bring the Korban Pesach. We cannot bring the sacrifice that we're supposed to bring for Pesach. Why should we be jeopardized? Moshe Rabbeinu sent a message upstairs to the Almighty, and the reply came back. A chance, a second chance will be given one month later on the 14th of Iyar to bring that sacrifice. And if people weren't able to, through their own fault or through no fault of their own, they would be able to do it one month later. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So you're back with me and we're talking about how we can do Pesach Sheni or what Pesach Sheni actually means. What is this second Pesach? What do we need to do and what is it actually all about? Well, we spoke about a couple of the ideas before the ad break and now let's think a little bit more about what effectively Pesach Sheni was. Well, one month later, after the, and this, by the way, is a mitzvah in the Torah, the Torah specif- specifies this Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, on the 14th of year, one month after the bringing of the sacrifice. So let's get it right. It wasn't after the beginning of Pesach, which we celebrate on the 15th of Nisan, It was one month after the bringing of the sacrifice because that was the essential part here. The sacrifice would be brought and could be brought to the Beit HaMikdash, to the temple, one month later. And it was for anybody 
who perhaps was in a state of impurity. Now, these were the exclusions from people being able to actually bring the Pesach offering in the first place if they were in a state of impurity. So perhaps somebody who they were close to had passed away and they'd come into contact with the dead body. Perhaps they'd had to attend a funeral. Perhaps they had been in a building where there was a dead body and they were therefore spiritually tame. They were in a state of impurity or for any of the other reasons of impurity, or perhaps they had taken a journey. They had gone away, and they were somewhere far away, and they had not managed to get back in time. You know, I, uh, I'm sure that you have heard of people, and I certainly have, of people who were stuck in uh, remote places. Yes, it's become very apparent with all this uh, lockdown story and so on. There could have been people who were stuck in a faraway place, unable to get or to access the ability to bring the korban, to bring the sacrifice, to get to Jerusalem in order to do it or to keep Pesach properly. They had an opportunity one month later for the bringing of the sacrifice, for the bringing of the korban, for the bringing of the Pesach offering, so they didn't have to miss out, so their souls weren't deprived of this opportunity. And one month later, upon their return, or upon their return to a state of purity, they could now bring this korban, they could bring the sacrifice, offer it up in Every which way the same as had been done one month before by all those who were able to, and they didn't have to miss out. So the Jewish people were pleading, pleading with Moshe, pleading with God. Here was a time where people were pleading to do the mitzvah of Pesach. We often joke about, we think about that perhaps um, we wouldn't be pleading so much because of all the cleaning and all the preparations that had to be done. Well, interestingly enough, for Pesach Sheni, they didn't have to do all of that. They didn't have to get rid of chametz. They didn't have to have their houses pristine and perfect. And they didn't have to keep a week-long festival. They were able to bring the korban, to bring the sacrifice on the 14th of Iyar, one month later, to make up for what they had missed out on, what they hadn't done up until then, and they had this opportunity for restitution, they had this opportunity to make it up and to bring that korban, to bring that sacrifice. It was eaten with the bitter herbs, with the maror. It was eaten on the evening of the 15th, similar to the way that the uh, korban Pesach was done in its original state. So it would have been done, for instance, on this coming Thursday evening. Uh, sorry, on, on Friday evening, following the uh, 14th, following the bringing of it, it was sacrificed on the 14th. It was eaten on the evening of the 15th with the um, uh, with the matzah, with the maror, as it would have been. But that was it. That was the uh, beauty of this chag. Power packed, Pesach in one, all in that one day on the 14th of year. Now this was not open to people to opt for. So you couldn't say, well, I don't feel like celebrating Pesach, and therefore I'm just going to do it this way. It'll be much easier, much quicker, much um, less painful, much uh, less difficult. Let me just opt for Pesach Sheni. Now, that we weren't allowed to do. It had to be with good reason that actually you were away or actually you were too far away. And it, 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 the only thing that it did include was that even if a person had gone away, they had traveled away and knowingly had um, – Gone on this trip knowing that there was a chance that they wouldn't get back, for instance, knowing that there was a possibility that they wouldn't be able to bring it, or even if it was intentional, they had gone away 
knowing that they would be away for that time and now they felt bad about it and they wanted to make it up. This was only the makeup for the um, real and realistic, although even purposeful, uh, difficulties that people had in bringing the Korban Pesach. This was the dispensation that was allowed to them to bring it one month later. Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach. Now, interestingly enough, our sages point out that quite fascinatingly, this Pesach Sheni was a new Chag, a new festival in and of itself. Although it is called Pesach Sheni, the second Pesach, some used to refer to it as Pesach Katan, like we have a Purim Katan. In other words, the small Pesach, it um, did have the power of being a festival in its own right. And a festival in its own right was different to Pesach itself. So yes, we didn't have the ideas of having to be rid of chametz. We didn't have the idea of having to clean out our homes. We didn't have the idea even um, of, um, of, for instance, uh, saying the, uh, the, the prayers that you have on Pesach and so on. Although Hallel was still said apparently when the korban, when the sacrifice was actually brought, even though it was one month later. So it had certain powers in and of themselves. But one of the points in Jewish law that is pointed out is what would happen if a person converted to Judaism between Pesach and Pesach Sheni, um, they had the opportunity then to bring the Korban Pesach, the Paschal offering for that year on the 14th of Iyar, on this day on Pesach Sheni. Now, so therefore it is proved that it wasn't just a make-up um, for something that we'd missed. It was something that could be used as a first in uh, instruction, in a way, for a convert, for somebody converting to Judaism, to actually bring the Korban Pesach, this Paschal offering, for the very first time on Pesach Sheni. So it had a power of a Chag, of a festival, in and of itself. When we think about Pesach Sheni, what we actually do today, I mentioned to you that we did not say the Tachanun prayers, the penitential prayers of Tachanun, are not said on Friday. And in addition to that, we eat matzah. So we should try. It's not the only thing that we have to eat, and we can also eat bread. But we try and eat a piece of matzah at some stage during the day on Friday to commemorate, to celebrate this very, very special day, which actually in the desert, as we have said, was the last time that the people ate matzah. But in addition to that, it was also the celebration of this very special Chag, which instituted or, or, or taught us that Hashem can switch our sustenance or our blessings in an overnight. It can change from what was up to then and from then, from matzah to um, the manna that the people ate in the desert. It could change. And I think we have seen that, that things have changed. We are busy with uh, one of the hugest changes um, in history, but one of the uh, certainly the, the biggest change that we've seen in life in our own lifetimes of a world that shut down and things that have changed. But we have to know that this is not an, a, an idea that uh, Hashem's blessings are not there, God forbid, but rather that they are different. The blessings need to be recognized and we need to see them for what they are in a slightly different fashion. Of course, the major thrust of this festival of Pesach Sheni is the fact that it is never too late to make up. It is never too late 
to, uh, to, to, to do things correctly. And it's also that there is never a loss. We've never lost the opportunity for a mitzvah. We always have the opportunity to do something good. And the fact that we just haven't done it up until now doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done now. There is always a second chance. There is always an opportunity to make good. And we need to take full advantage of that kind of a theme and that kind of idea and ideal throughout our lives and how much more so at this time when we are celebrating this special festival of Pesach Sheni. Now, after Shabbos, on the coming Tuesday, we also have another beautiful date, which is known as Lag Baomer. Now, Lag means Lamed Gimel. Lamed Gimel is 33. It is the 33rd day of the counting of Svirata Omer. So we began with the counting of Svirata Omer on the second evening of Pesach, and we count all the way through and up to Shavuot, the festival of Matan Torah Tenu. But on the 33rd day um, of the Omer, which is actually the 18th day of Iyar, on that particular day, we have a special, special date. And it commemorates two essential things. Number one is, it is the yard site of somebody called Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He is buried in a place called Miron in the north of Israel. And last year and the year before that and the year before that, there were hundreds of thousands of people who attended celebrations in the surrounds of his grave site, which is in the mountains in Miron, not far from the city of Tzfat in the north of Israel, and where people gather because the power of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is, uh, is powerful and, uh, and recognized by people from all walks of life and all groupings and all different facets of Judaism in Israel on this particular date. It is also the day on which the students of Rabbi Akiva who perished during this period of time did not die or they stopped dying according to the two different versions of, uh, of the way that it's read. But everybody agrees that on the 33rd day of the Omer, nobody died. And so therefore, at a time of a terrible plague, at the time of a difficulty that they faced at that time, which cost, believe it or not, 24,000 um, students of Rabbi Akiva, the most incredible, incredible teacher and, and uh, Talmud Chacham and uh, wise man of the, of the era, the leader of the generation of the time in Torah learning, that his students perished from a terrible plague. Nobody died on that day, on the 33rd day, although they all perished between Pesach and Shavuot. Nobody during that period of time. So the idea of plagues, the idea of difficulties, the idea of people dying from these things is certainly not new. Our sages pointed out that the reason why they died was they did not show kavod. They did not show honor one to another. There was not enough ahavat Israel. There was not enough love and compassion and sharing and caring and kindness between people. And therefore, the conclusion was that this is why they perished. But on Lakba Omer, there was a return to that love. There was a return to that uh, compassion, to that kindness, to that sharing, to that caring. And this ultimately is one of the many themes of this very special day. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. So we were speaking about Lakba Omer coming up on Tuesday. 
Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who lived actually in the second century of the Common Era, was the first to publicly teach the mystical dimensions of the Torah, known as Kabbalah. He is the author of the classic text of Kabbalah known as the Zohar. And it was on the day of his passing that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai instructed his disciples to mark the date of his passing as the day of my joy. Simcha, he said, is what needs to be celebrated on that particular day. Now, from a Hasidic mystical point of view, there is the explanation that the final day of a righteous person's life on earth marks the point at which all their deeds, all their teachings, and all the work that they achieved during their lifetime um, reaches its culmination on that particular day. And so each Lagba Omer, we celebrate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's life and the revelation of what is known as the esoteric soul of Torah, Kabbalah, mysticism, or the Zohar. Now, each Lagba Omer, therefore, there is a festive event. There is something exceptional, special that takes place here. The uh, major part of this event or these events take place in Miron. Unfortunately, as I was reading online just yesterday, this year, because of all of these um, uh, events of late, a very, very small crowd will be permitted to be there, or a very small number of people because of the social distancing and so on. But usually, it's literally hundreds of thousands of people that gather there. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe, instituted many, many years ago that there should be parades for children. And therefore, there came into being the idea of Lagbo Omer parades, a parade giving children pride and fulfillment in what they're doing, to be able to parade through the streets with banners, with floats, with all sorts of beautiful things, and show off and be proud of their Judaism in a public fashion. There was something very spiritual and mystical as well about these Lagba Omer parades. It was at these Lagba Omer parades that the Rebbe addressing children very often spoke about the security of Israel, particularly, and not the least of which was shortly uh, before the Six-Day War, where the Rebbe spoke to the children of all people, the Rebbe addressed the children on the idea of the war that was um, about to blow up in Israel and of the fact that Israel would be safe and it's the safest place on earth and it's the place where the eyes of God are upon that place and they guard it and protect all the inhabitants all the time that um, it was at a particular Lagba Omer parade that this was addressed then in, in 1967 but the concept of a parade not only of Jewish pride but of the fact that this was some kind of a triumphant march of Judaism became a new theme and a new idea that um, pervaded it all and that took us with pride into celebration of this particular date of Lagba Omer, the idea of love, of care, of um, compassion, the idea of people thinking about others before they thought about themselves, or the fact that people were focused on what we can do to actually change the environment, make the streets Jewish, make everything around us into something that is uplifted, that benefits from all the messages and all the beautiful things that our Torah and our mitzvot can and do teach us. We'll be back with you right after this. 
Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. A few final words on Al-Lagba Omer, which is coming up, as we said, on Tuesday. There are two major symbols of Lagba Omer. One is bonfires. Why bonfires? Well, if you think about the concept of a bonfire, a bonfire in olden days was used as a means of communication, but it communicates an incredible message to us. Number one is the concept of a bonfire is that it provides at the same time warmth and light. And the idea of the light or the fire of Torah, and particularly the mystical parts of Torah, the hidden parts of Torah, being able to warm our souls, being able to enlighten and light up and lift our entire world, this is one of the symbols of Lagba Omer. It's a date of that sort of inspiration of the warmth and the light of Torah and mitzvot and everything that is deep and profound and beautiful within them is spelled out by the concept of lighting bonfires. So yes, I guess that is something that you could do um, at home and that you could um, uh, do even this year, make yourself a fire outside, perhaps have a cookout, a braai, whatever you want to call it in your celebration, because of course we're going to be doing these things at home this year and uh, tap into the energy of the day with bonfire, with the idea of a fire. Please be careful and be sure that you're careful with your kids around it as well. Um, um, but it is certainly a symbol of Lagba Omer. One of the other symbols of Lagba Omer was the concept of a bow and arrow. Have you ever thought about the concept of a bow and arrow and what its link actually is with Lagba Omer? Well, there is a very beautiful mystical explanation about the bow and arrow, and that is just taken from the stance that the um, uh, the marksman has as he is pulling back on the bow to bring the arrow to a point whereby it can be shot. He actually pulls back we can see the, uh, the bow. He pulls the strings of that bow back towards his heart and then he releases it and he, as he lets it go, so that string of the bow pushes the arrow and makes it fly through the air in order to reach its target. The idea of an arrow perhaps is a symbol of the way that we need to reach out to others in love. And as we reach out to others in love, if it is something that is brought back and tugs at our heartstrings, it will certainly tug at theirs. As we utilize the power within our hearts and the commitment and the sincerity that we have in trying to reach out to others, particularly at this difficult time, if it is something that comes from the heart, it will certainly penetrate the hearts of the people that we're trying to reach. Let's do things in honor of Lagba Omer in a way of sincerity, in words that come from the heart, in thoughts that come from the heart, in gestures that come from the heart. Let's use those heartstrings in order to propel those arrows of love, those arrows of care, and those arrows of commitment to each and every person that we're trying to reach. And by the way, the further you reach within your heart, the further you can actually shoot that arrow, the further it will travel and the more impact it will have on the people that it is meant to reach. So I want to wish you a wonderful Pesach Sheni for the Chag, for the festival that comes up on Friday, a wonderful Lagba Omer for the festival that comes up on Tuesday. Have a great Shabbat up ahead, and I look forward to being back with you again, same time, same place, next week on another edition of Judaism 101.9.